Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen. It's for March 2015. I am writer, hyphen, critic, hyphen, still working on a joke about replacing Jeremy Clarkson, Zane from One Direction, John Stewart, and I guess Singapore's first Prime Minister. It's been a busy month, and with me as always is. Hi there, everybody. I'm writer, hyphen, director, hyphen, crying Arnold Schwarzenegger, Paul Anthony Nelson. And with us this month is. Our very special guest will be joining us in the next segment. So. You have that to look forward to in, I don't know, 15 minutes. Yeah. But for now, we're going to talk about some of the key films of this past month that hopefully you guys have seen, that we've seen. We can all talk about. To, well, you guys can't talk. You can just listen. But you've hopefully seen them. It's now, my kind of conversation. It's a one-way conversation. <laughs> that's it. And I don't know if you remember, Paul, but um, a few decades ago, Paul Thomas Anderson made a film called Inherent Vice. Now, it's... <laughs> It's finally come out in Australia. Uh, no, it's, A distributor it's, who shall remain nameless, who were apparently taking up the whole day and date thing, weren't they? That, yeah. was their, that was their vow? I think it was within a few days of saying everything will be day and date from now on. Mm. They said, Inherent Vice will now come out in several months in Australia. <laughs> so, sure. But you know what? It's a Paul Thomas Anderson film. As frustrating as it is to wait, it's always worth the wait. I mean... So this inherent vice based on the Thomas Pynchon novel, this, the easy comparison, but the irresistible one is Big Lebowski and the Long Goodbye. It's a sort of slacker, stoner, surfer, detective that combine these styles. And yeah, Joaquin Phoenix as this, uh, as this Pynchon detective who goes down this sort of labyrinthine Mandelbrot of a mystery that, where the plot is just inconsequential to the machinations of, of what happens on the screen. I don't know, I kind of like that he's taken a genre that is so heavily reliant on plot and just removed all the plot distractions. <laughs> I mean, look, there is a plot there, and I personally thought the plot made sense. I mean, I think if you've yeah. watched enough noir, mm. it, it does. I mean, yeah. you know, like, you go back to the big sleep, not even Raymond Chandler knew who the killer was. You know, he was quite open about that. Well, I don't think, by, by the way, I don't think that the story is so difficult to follow as it's pushed deep into mumbled dialogue. Yes. And yeah, I think that's I think that, what yeah. the, the problem some people are having with it. And it's, it's also, okay, now, I didn't dig it as much as you did. Yeah. I, I, there's certainly a lot to like. It's a Paul Thomas Anderson film. He can't make a bad one. There are... I could just watch every scene with, uh, with Joaquin Phoenix's Doc and um, Josh Brolin's Bigfoot yeah. on a loop. Those guys are hilarious together. You know, there, there's so many great little character bits. The film does have a tendency to meander. Mm. It has a tendency to kind of wander off hazily in directions that some may say are unnecessary. Some may say are a little bit tedious. And when the film clocks in at 148 minutes, it's kind of, it does test the patience at times. I think that's another reason why people, some people have found it a little bit hard to follow or grasp because I think it meanders in these directions and people's attentions wander. Mm. And then when they come back to it, they've, they've kind of missed a whole bunch of stuff. As a, as a fan of Anderson's, I think it's worth watching for him kind of aping this beautiful 70s shot on 70 millimeter style. As a noir, I don't think it's particularly interesting. Mm. Um, I think as, as a noir is its least effective subject. Even as an examination of a time, I don't know if it's actually got a lot to say. It feels, I think of his all his films, this is the one that feels the most like an exercise. It feels like 
he just kind of wanted to make a film set in LA through that, you know, a new Hollywood film set in LA with that kind of stoner logic and just have fun. Yeah. And I think this is really just Paul Thomas Anderson doing whatever interests him. And that's great. And that's, you know, like I, I'm not going to begrudge the guy that, you know. Um, I think there are a lot of films where people love them because they elicit a certain mood. And then when you go back and watch them, the mood is maybe five minutes of the whole film. And I think he's... I feel like this is an experiment in filmmaking in the sense that he knows that people love the, that that certain mood that only exists for a moment in a film, and he stretched it out to an entire film, mm. which is, I think, it's a remarkable magic trick, I think. But I, I also love that it's his funniest film to date. I did feel like as much as I love There Will Be Blood and I love The Master, he was going down this very, very serious route. Mm. They didn't have as much of the humour as was in Boogie Nights, for instance. Yeah. But, or Punch Drunk Love. Or, or Punch yeah. Drunk Love. But he, he's really... I mean, he notoriously loves comedies. Mm. He's you know, And lowbrow comedies as well. Yeah. But I'm glad that he's getting back to that humour because he, he's yeah. obviously so good at it. And there are some insanely funny moments. And I'm with you. Like, the humour is the strongest aspect of this film i think when it's funny it's fucking hilarious and yeah and like it's it's kind of nice to see him let his freak flag fly and have a bit of fun but yeah i just kind of wish it worked a little more as a noir and it was a little tighter whereas it feels like there is a return to form for tim burton with big eyes and i think we feel like it's a return to form because it's not as chronically unwatchable as alice in wonderland (laughs) or planet of the apes and i'm going to challenge myself on that in a moment, but I'll I'll tell you why. This is a really, really strange, it feels like, on the surface it looks like it should be a Tim Burton film, because big eyes are this sort of... Kitschy. It's a characteristic that feels typical of Burton. Yep. And so on that aspect, from that aspect it feels like it's right, but this could have been directed by anyone. This isn't where his skill set lies. Even with Ed Wood, he wasn't, you know, where he was telling... Edward story as if it was an Edward film. Mm. Whereas this is, it's a fairly straight biopic that doesn't delve that deep into the issues it's exploring. Mm. You do see the emotions on screen, but it doesn't really dig deeper than it sucks to be ripped off by this guy who's controlling me. Yeah. And I feel like there are these other things he thinks he's exploring, like the commercialization of art and is something popular. Is, does it, is it also good or does it have to be one or the other? But, doesn't really know what position to take because, mm. you know, the, the opening where everything's being uh, printed, you mm. see the p- constant printing of these and it's really commercialised, but is he? I can't tell if he's criticising that or I feel like he has more sympathy for that. Like, the, the, there's a, there's a critic... I think the sympathy is definitely there. There's a critic character yeah. who I kind of, like, as much as I love Terence Stamp, I bristled at a little bit because it was the whole uh, critics don't understand art, what do they know? And then I thought, you know what, I hated Alice in Wonderland. I think it's legitimately one of the worst films I've ever seen. It grossed over a billion dollars. People love it. The rest do of the they, wo- though? I've yet to meet one. Well, I think that says more about us than, the, than the, what the, the finances clearly say. And so I was thinking, well, there's this thing that so many people apparently love that we're saying has no value and I think, you know what, I'm almost with Burton on that against myself. But look, I don't know. I, th- I think that the I think Amy Adams is fantastic. I think there are some great laughs in there. And I think the highlight, I'm not usually a fan of the flashback style, but the highlight of the film is the court case at the end. And I kind of wish there'd been more of that. And if they'd use that as the framing device to tell the conflicting stories, because there are a lot of conflicting viewpoints 
And if they'd used that court case more, I think I would have been more on board with this film, which is Helena Bonham Carter's best direction yet. <laughs> Rant over. <laughs> Rant? Wow. I, you are much kinder on this than I am. Oh, really? Yeah. I. Yeah. This is the film that has finally told me I can't trust Tim Burton anymore. Wow. I can't do it. I can't. This is... You say it could have been directed by anybody. I look at it and I go, no, this is very much a Tim Burton film and this is why I can't trust him anymore. His worst characteristic, particularly of the last 15 years, has been he gets characters and turns them into caricatures. Mm. And his best films, where you look at Ed Wood and and, um, Batman Returns and possibly Edward Scissorhands as well, he does the opposite. He gets caricatures and turns them into characters. And I feel like he is embedded so deep now into turning... Caricature, uh, characters into caricatures that even given a real life story that's really interesting and has a lot to say about what you know the glass ceiling that women faced in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. and what you know the the gender roles box that people were locked into to the commercialization of art to the whole you know popularity versus um artistic merit thing so the script's loaded with subtext and it's from good writers mm. and he's got great actors in the lead and he still fumbles it because he's got them, like, bless Amy Adams, she is trying her damnedest to bring any sort of gravity and emotion to this thing. Yeah. And it's like she's in a different film to everybody else. I love Christoph Waltz, I think, and I think he's criminally wasted in this film. I think he's just playing a cartoon. Yeah. He's just, he's all up and about, and he's, and, and, and see, the court scene was where it finally, that was the nail in the coffin. Oh, really? It's like, this is funny, but this is ridiculous. Yeah. Like, like the Danny Houston character who seems to just narrate the film whenever Burton yeah. feels like it. Like it's not even a device. It's like you're suddenly reminded that, oh, that's right, you started narrating this thing. What happened? Where'd you go? Which is kind of the case for most of the characters in this film. They sort of just pop up at random times. Like there seems to be no structure or rhyme or reason. Everything's so so thinly vignetted. That... But, you know, uh, so Danny Houston saying, oh, everything he learned about, all he knew about being in a courtroom is what he'd seen in Perry Mason. And then we see Christoph Waltz imitating bits from Perry Mason, whether it's applicable or not. And it's like, I'm sorry, like, just making him look like a cartoonish buffoon. Walter Keane may have been a buffoon, but this is like Will Ferrell movie stuff. Like, this is just stupid. It was a little over the top. And I I think the reason I was so drawn to the court case sequence is that it's the classic... Person A versus Person B. And I found there was some really promising stuff early on where uh, she's challenging him on, wait, you've just stolen that. And he has a really good explanation for some of it. Mm. I mean, he is clearly a very, very deft con man. Mm. And I think in that situation where he's got these, these, these very convincing justifications for what is clearly nonsense, mm. to see that in the courtroom... Uh, would have been, I think, the most satisfying way to tell the story that, the, at least the story that Burton's That's trying to tell thing. here. Like, surely he would have been more convincing in the courtroom than just be an absolute buffoon. Mm. Like, it just seemed like the pulled shoulder thing that did happen in real life, like with the with the painting. Oh thing. yeah, yeah, like yeah. that that was a real life thing. But everything else, it's like this just feels like lowest. Common, like just going for cheap laughs, like and, running back and forth and into yes, and, yeah. and it's just and and yeah. And, 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 and if and, that and, actually and, happened, we're not in a, in the type of film that convinces us because Burton's already no. It's got all that stuff like the close up of the fork stopping, you know, uh, half a centimeter from 
Terrence Stamp's eye that yeah. we see in the trailer, and yeah. from and like the fire, and, the, and there was all these ridiculous kind of over the very over the top, very Burton esque kind of scenes. And mm. I think, I think his directorial fingerprints are all over it, and I think that's part of the problem. I think. Mm. He really needed to... Like, Ed Wood, he could make that like an Ed Wood film and get away with it. Mm. I found even stuff like... And I'm not a real fan, but, like, stuff like Big Fish, and I felt even stuff like that felt more realistic than this. Yeah. Which is a shame, because I think it underserves the actors that are in it, particularly Amy Adams, who I think is is, is really good and tries is valiantly trying to bring some truth to this. Mm. Um, but I think in the end, it, it almost completely fails. So, uh, I'd like to introduce our very special guest this month, all the way from the UK, is uh, actor and uh, genre queen, Pollyanna McIntosh. Uh, thank you very much. I'm actually in LA at the moment. Well, Pollyanna, thank you so much for joining us. It's very lovely to have you with us, uh, especially given we've got uh, you with us talking about two different filmmakers today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I've got to revisit lots of movies that I love. Well, we're, uh, we're starting with, uh, with a mini hyphenate. Paul, do you want to take us in there? Now, uh, yeah, of course. Um, now, this is a mini hyphenate I've wanted to explore for a long time because I've been a massive, um, a massive fan, but there were still a couple of his films I didn't see and I was so happy to catch up with them. But the man we're looking at today is director-slash-choreographer Bob Fosse. Applause. Um, Twist of the hands and maybe some knock knees. <laughs> and now this guy, as 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 uh, uh, listeners could probably tell, uh, changed the face of choreography as as a dancer and choreographer. But come the late '60s, he'd begun directing plays for uh, for Broadway and moved to cinema in uh, 1969 with a massive big budget adaptation of Sweet Charity, which he'd already directed for the stage. Starring Shirley MacLaine. i got to say, I'm not usually a musicals guy. I, Lee knows this. Um, <laughs> and maybe uh, listeners who listened to our Vince, Vincent Minnelli episode a few episodes ago could also attest to this. But there's something about Fosse's style that immediately grabs you. He's not afraid to be sexual. He's not afraid to be bold. And he's not afraid to, and this is going to be in a recurring theme throughout his five features, he's not afraid to plumb the dark side of show business. Yes. And Sweet Charity is a, is, is the story of Charity Hope Valentine. Extremely ironic, sad name. No, she is to... hopeful, to be fair. And she that... is generous. Mm. She mm. is indeed. And, and uh... she is sweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess, yeah. I mean, her name is true to her, just maybe not the world around her. Um, exactly, Paul, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what is a girl to do? Exactly. <laughs> she just wants to dance and fall in love. And she why does the world keep rejecting her? Because they're not ready for her, frankly. They're just yeah. not ready. The, uh, the the arguments that Paul and I always have about um, about musicals come from because like the period that I love is that you know the Gene Kelly Fred Astaire era of musicals and uh, they start to lose me a bit once they get into the Flower Child 1960 stuff. So I did approach Sweet Charity with a bit of trepidation, but I found that it actually Sweet Charity is one of the best examples of why I love musicals because I've always argued that musical is the ultimate form of cinema because in all types of movies every single one. All elements are stylized, from cinematography to the soundtrack, editing, everything. The only thing that isn't is the actors. 
and in musical the musicals the actors are stylized, and I've never seen that better depicted than in the uh, Hey Big Spender number that opens Sweet Charity. Yes, I love it. How amazing is that? And it looks like it's directed by Martin Scorsese. Like, the way he shoots, the way Fosse's eye just... And it's like, this is a guy who's born to make cinema. Well, mm. absolutely. And the thing with him, you know, coming from his stage background and his dancing and choreography background, and not just background, because, of course, it went all the way through, but um, is that he was one of the first people to experiment on stage with lighting that really brought the eye to, to specific dancers and, and brought the mood, you know? So he was just... He was just ready to bring that to the screen. Mm. Like you say, that light, I feel like people like Scorsese are influenced by Fosse, and it's weird that, well, it was the same situation for me, though, that I didn't know that he was a director. Even though I'd seen Cabaret years before, I, I didn't realise, and Sweet Charity, I didn't realise that that was Bob Fosse, you know? Mm. I just thought he was mm. dancing, dancing man. Yeah, not incredible directing. And and I just love the fact that he's not afraid to go sad with this film. Like, it's such a huge kind of movie. And it's a, it's a basically about a woman who is just, you know, re- despite her endless hope is kind of rejected and rebuffed at every turn. And even the ending is bittersweet. And it's, it's a way that musicals beforehand, I to my experience, just weren't, uh, weren't courageous enough to be, and this and this film just kind of uh, embraces that. Unfortunately, it lost a stack of money, and Fosse was kind of pretty much on the outer, or as as a film director for I a little while, until uh, Allied Artists and ABC Studios were putting together uh, Cabaret. And there's an anecdote of Bob Fosse basically sheepishly coming into the office and sort of looking at his shoes and pitching to the producer, you know, I think I could do a pretty good job with this film. I think I could. (laughs) Which is amazing when you consider the result. Yeah, eight Academy Award nominations from, uh, sorry, eight Academy Awards from 11 nominations, including an Oscar for Fosse. Um, Again, it's 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 a musical about a Weimar era burlesque club at a time when the political landscape of Germany is changing. Like there's a time when in in this sort of theatrical Weimar world that you know fluid sexuality is kind of is is being explored and is okay and kind of out there. But you know that once the Nazis take over, that's all going to be suppressed and destroyed and and there's just this dark rumbling cloud that threat that hovers over this entire movie um see the mc is such a fascinating character i know i just got to see alan cumming do it again in new york mm-hmm. recently and of course he's wonderful 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 and it's just still such an appealing story of musical for people to go and see it's lasted so bloody long but i think the, when i i did a bit of um did a bit of burlesque for a while just for fun a few years ago mm. and Cabaret was the thing that I watched because Liza Minnelli and that is just so sexy, but she's so in charge and kind of laissez-faire at the same time. She's sort of, she's looking down on her audience a lot, you know, yeah. which is kind of fun to play with. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, personal power and dominance kind of there when she's on, on the stage. And I guess that's a key to why she chooses it ultimately. Right, because she just can't keep a hold of herself off of it at all. Yeah. Just, Those men again. I feel like Fosse is so attracted to women's struggle in relationships, you know. But it's 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 never it's from a very female perspective. Mm. Yeah, that was that was one of the things that fascinated me because mm. and he's constantly attracted to these within um, uh, with Charity and with Sally Bowles and with even Honey Bruce, Dorothy, of course, in Star Eighty as well. Yes, yeah, it's, it's from her perspective. 
it has very much this type of kind of women who remain kind of almost heartbreakingly hopeful despite all other evidence to the contrary in like from the world around them right like i'm gonna fall in love with the gay man yes yes this endless kind of hopefulness that, that remains despite everything else being eroded by the world around it and i find that really a really fascinating type yeah he's one of the best directors slash writers i guess as you say of female roles like his his women are always really complex and interesting he must make his actors he must have made his actors quite relaxed because for you think of somebody who's who's a choreographer you imagine them being really strict and uptight mm-hmm. degree right and very rule oriented and disciplined and he of course exposed himself in all that jazz as being you know a massive egomaniac and and an addict and all of those things and he explores that with Lenny as well and that ego side. And But he must make his actors feel relaxed because Eric Roberts in Star 80, for instance, and, you know, and, mm. and, and uh, Mariel Hemingway was, was young and she's just, oh, and of course, Shirley MacLaine is just always brilliant. Yeah. There's, he lets them, he gives them breathing space, I think, because the complexity of the, the change of emotions feels very relaxed and natural to me. Yeah, and really lets them go for it. Yeah, they they clearly feel like he's there to couch them. Well, speaking of Vincent Minnelli again, uh, he actually helped design Sally Bowles' costume in Cabaret, and uh, because, of course, it was his daughter starring in it. And I I find it really interesting, uh, because we have just looked at Minnelli's films, that these incredibly ground... You would think that the the last place a groundbreaking filmmaker would come from would be the theatre. You would think they'd be more concerned with I don't know, uh, other things other than the, the actual filmmaking. But Minnelli was so groundbreaking with camera movements and Fosse is so groundbreaking with editing. There is, there is um, uh, montage in Cabaret, in Sweet Charity as well, particularly in Cabaret, that is really groundbreaking. Mm. I was wondering with, with his um, later work as well, if it was kind of... Did he, was he groundbreaking in the sense of making something seem like a documentary when it was real? I was wondering that, yeah, because Lenny and, and Star 80 as well both yeah. had that framing device of yeah. the fake interviews. Mm. Yeah. And, and sorry, because I went off on a different subject, but mm. going back to what you were just saying, it makes so much sense to me re-watching them for Fosse that, that he is an incredible filmmaker coming from a dance background and a stage background. Because I think the difference is that he's not a theatre director turned film director. Yes. He's a choreographer turned film director. And a choreographer is taking this body and in imagining it from the perspective of an audience watching it and saying, how can I put, you know, this body, these limbs into the light in a certain way or tilt the head in a certain way or make the costume a certain way to accentuate this uh, move? You know, he's... And it's all emotion-based because he was one of the first people who, or certainly the first people to make it uh, that's talked about now as having done this, to um, to encourage his dancers to understand what they're feeling as they're dancing, even in yeah. straight-up musical theatre, where a lot of it before was just very smiley-smiley. Yeah. And God, doesn't it make a difference? I mean, look at Big Spender, for instance. That's I can't imagine anybody doing it the way he did it. Mm. They're just so bored and... Yeah. <laughs> uh, rotten inside and disinterested in the men whilst they're singing, you know, come on in and just give me all your cash, you bastards. <laughs> <laughs> it's that it's that kind of attitude, though, that just infuses all his stuff that's just so... It, it's so raw. Like, he's perfectly suited. I, I don't know why he's not mentioned among the kind of the new Hollywood elite, because I think... I you know, know. 
he's older than those guys. Like he's, he's he was more like Kubrick and Altman's age, but I mean Altman gets thrown in with the new Hollywood, and he is as much like his style is so new Hollywood. Even like uh, I mean, even Sweet Charity was kind of has its foot in both camps. Mm-hmm. It's a very new Hollywood attitude. But then you get by the time you get to Lenny in 1974, which is his biography biopic of Lenny of comedian Lenny Bruce, mm. played by Dustin Hoffman. You're in crazy New Hollywood territory, you know. Yeah. Shot in black and white. It's kind of, as you say, it's this documentary, elliptical kind of documentary style. It's about freedom of speech. It's about, yeah. you know, speaking truth to power. It's and it, and 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 it's about one person's own self destruction. Well, you know, two people who love each other but couldn't help destroying each other all at once. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and another great, incredible female performance as well. I feel like it's either exposing the new Hollywood as not really knowing their movies, but also perhaps because of that, he's not cool, Bob Fosse. He's not considered cool. I mean, he's incredibly fucking cool. Yes. He's not considered cool because Chicago is still on in the West End and all the out-of-towners going to see it and going, this is the best thing ever. And new Hollywood is going, oh, we know better than that. We know that musicals are just a bunch of old nonsense. And that's how people think of Bob Fosse, I feel like. And it wasn't, it's not even his choreography that's going around in Chicago anymore. I don't even like that musical. Mm. It's rubbish. But um, <laughs> just me. I think there's that weird element with him of just not being cool. Um, and anyone who hasn't seen Sweet Charity, looking at the cover and looking at, you know, the colour and the Shirley MacLaine back in that time, are probably just thinking it's just a load of old fluff. You know? Well, that's what kept me away from it for a long time. And I should have known better knowing, you know, Fosse's work. But it's sort of thought, geez, you know, and again, two and a half hours of songs. And then you watch it and it's like, oh, my God, this film's actually incredibly sad. And, and but also has these amazing moments as well. And, and, you know, I mean, who doesn't love Sammy Davis Jr. as a cult leader? Oh, the best. Right? <laughs> that idea that he snuck in and, and the, the 60s nightclub dance sequences, all the costumes by Edith Head, so incredible. Yes. Yeah. So about, I mean, that's still, you know, that's, that makes us all laugh now. Like nightclubs are still like that, you know, and the, <laughs> the parody, the, the send up is just so perfect. He had a heart attack during the making of Lenny and that informed, I can't even say his masterpiece because he's got at least two or three masterpieces in here, but uh, 1979's All That Jazz, which is, it feels like a, an autobiographical film by someone who hates themselves. Like, <laughs> it, it's this examination of mortality, but it's also about his worst aspects. He shows himself to be this selfish, womanizing, drug-addicted, sickened man who's successful in his career, but not he doesn't show himself to be the tortured genius. He also shows that sometimes when he directs stuff, it's actually not genius. It's a bit, it, it's on the line. It's all down to interpretation. And yeah. Yeah, it's such a it's such a sad, reflective movie that reminded me so much of uh, Synecdoche, New York, which we talked about last time. Oh, night. yes. Oh, my God, I'd almost forgotten about that movie that I liked so very much. Yeah? Yeah. I saw all that jazz a few years ago and realized that I'd never picked it up because I thought it was some cheesy musical. Hmm. And for some reason, somebody told me to watch it and I, and I did. And I was glowing from the inside with that movie. I know it's really sad and yes, and really horrific, but I love it when people explore difficult topics and ego is, is a difficult topic, you know, and he just goes for it. Hmm. His depiction of himself as someone who's honest in their work and fraudulent in their personal life. Hmm. That's well put. Yeah. A lot of people felt that the end was too much, all that stuff with the angel was too much. But 
I just was willing with that movie to let him do whatever the hell he wanted because he presented this incredible, incredibly intimate family, you know, modern, weird family life. Mm. And the dancing, some of the best dancing for me is just in that li- in the living room, you know, um, with his with his girl. Yeah. Yes. And kid. And, and, and again, that the female relationships in that I think are so well drawn, you know, um, the ones that they have with each other is just, I was really blown away watching that. It's a beautiful, beautiful flick. And of course that amazing on Broadway opening as well, um, mm. in which he, he, he aimed, he, he'd always seen casting calls and, and stuff depicted in film and it never rang true. And he wanted to make the most truthful one possible. Yeah. And so the, you get that sort of almost documentary approach and the touch you needed to have with people in order to handle that whole sort of situation and, you know, all those hopefuls and yeah. And it's just, it's beautiful. As sad and autobiographical as this film is, I think the saddest moment actually comes from a trivia uh, point in Star 80, his, uh, his last film the, uh, from 1983, not very well known, where he, because it's about uh, the real-life killer of a, um, a Playboy playmate, and he said he wanted to tell it from the perspective of the killer because he said, uh, I relate to him if my career hadn't taken off, I would be this psychopathic, horrible pimp character. And for him he to... He did not and, say that. He, he did, Apparently yeah. Apparently that was his director, Derek Roberts. He is... He's got like a death wish, Bob Fosse. He's just, you know, he's just mm. putting out so much truth about himself. It's it's wild. <laughs> it's almost arguable, like, you know, he, he ended all that jazz by literally killing himself, his his yeah. avatar, and it's mm. like he'd almost be forgiven for thinking he should have ended his career there. And I don't know, Star 80... You like a good story. I do. Yeah, <laughs> I do. <laughs> Star 80 is such a strange beast of a film. Like, there's stuff in there you can see fussy in there. Again, we've got the dark side of showbiz. Again, we have our heartbreaking, hopeful, heartbreakingly hopeful uh, leading lady. Again, we have you know the the kind of um, fame hungry man who's self destructive and can't help destroying someone else in the bargain. Mm. But there's something there's a there's a joie de cinema kind of missing here. Like there's not that style. There's not that kind of. That, what I feel that the reason for that is, is because of the the time that he's depicting. I think he had a real understanding of that time. I mean, it's it's like the 80s, right? It was 83 when he made it? Yeah. 83. And I feel like it was just starting to be that rot that the 80s became, you mm. know? And I I know what you mean, but see, it seems like when, when Eric Roberts is being hung out that window, the way it cuts, I mean, I've never been so scared watching somebody <laughs> hung out. And I've seen people out of windows in so many movies since that movie. Unfortunately, after, obviously, Cabaret, um, even Lenny was a big success and all that jazz was a big success as well. It won four Oscars from nine nominations. Star 80 wasn't, wasn't met with quite the same reception. Um, and I think with, it was uh, like the subject too, right? It's kind of cheesy and Well, dirty. it was also an, an open wound. It, it had only happened just two or three years earlier and Peter yeah. Bogdanovich was a big part of it because the R.M. Nicholas... Mm. director character is based on Bogdanovich. So Bogdanovich came and, and uh, Louise Stratton, uh, Dorothy's sister, um, yeah, were violently opposed to the movie and all that sort of thing. So I think there was a lot of negative press and, the, yeah, and critics didn't quite get, uh, like, yeah, just didn't quite meet with the same success. And unfortunately... Well, showing a lot of boobs of a murder victim. Well, yeah. An easy thing to deal with for, the, for, for us lot. 
I probably wouldn't have wanted to watch it three years after it happened either, to be honest. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, Not that's, because I don't think the film is, is, has value and is totally worthy, but just that subject matter, I just, I put off watching that movie for a long time. I hadn't watched it until I knew I was doing this, and I was like, shit, mm. now I have to watch Star 80. I'm terrified. <laughs> um, but I thought it wasn't eroticized to me, you know, the mm. violence, and the, I, didn't, it, I didn't feel that. No, it's very... But it was honest about the feelings of the murderer, which, you know, I think is bold and brave. And I think, politically speaking, if you want to say whether it was, you know, gross to, uh, film to make or not, I feel like if we don't explore the perspective of people who are doing things like that, and rape, for instance, the rapist is never talked about in any medium. Mm. And, um, and yet there are clearly, statistically, a lot of rapists out there. So I th- think it's really interesting yeah. that he chose to do it from that perspective. Definitely. Um, and, and that's the thing, again, that boldness that is shown throughout his, his entire career, I guess that, that is probably where the boldness shows itself here, is in, is in that, taking on that perspective for the film. Yeah. He went back to the stage to direct another musical and then that year uh, died in 1986, 87, a year after, died of a heart attack, probably brought upon by the, uh, the <laughs> many substances ingested as shown in uh, all that jazz. Mm. But he'll be sorely missed, but his influence is still felt. I mean, it's kind of like the he's sort of the like an amazo filmmaker, like the best parts of Martin Scorsese and... Um, and uh, Vincent Minnelli, and you know, it's like this kind of Voltron. And, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, he's also. Uh, do you remember him in The Little Prince? I have not seen The Little Prince, but I do know that he's in it. Well, the book obviously is amazing, but when I was a kid, the first thing I'd seen was The Little Prince, the movie. Yeah. And Bob who plays the snake in it, and he does this amazing song and dance routine as the snake, and. I was completely mesmerized by this character, like my whole childhood, and I had no idea it was Bob Fosse. But that look that he had, the hat and the braces and the black shirt with the black trousers and uh, the moves that he made, apparently were Michael Jackson's whole inspiration. Yeah, right. Yes. So if you think of the knees up and the, the groin stuff that he does, there was a move in, in Sweet Charity that I went, oh my God, that's totally Michael Jackson, mm. that one of the women was doing. And then after having, you know, having heard that, I'm like, yeah, I think they're right. God. Yeah. Seismic influence. (laughs) Yeah, the first thing I saw him in was uh, Kiss Me Kate as one of the dancers, and I think he ended up choreographing one of those epic dance sequences, but that's the first thing I always think of when I think of Fosse. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, he just kind of, I mean, because he started off in movies. He was a dancer in movies first. Yeah. Yeah. So think of the amount of film sets he must have been on throughout his career before any of us even knew about him. Absolutely. Know? Just watching, observing, and yeah. And waiting. Yeah, <laughs> waiting. Like a snake <laughs> in the little but Like a snake taking lots of drugs. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Pollyanna, please tell us, whom have you picked for your... Hellas for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. Nicole Hollifsena. <laughs> Brilliant. Excellent. So what, um, what made you pick her? Because I, I remember you were, you were trying to decide between a few different names, and uh, this, one, this one jumped out. Yeah, well, first of all, she's, she's an American auteur, and she's a woman, mm-hmm. and I just really, really like her movies. I really, really love her honesty and the subjects that she explores. She's just a very human filmmaker. And it's very realistic stuff. And she's so sparse, so wonderfully sparse in her dialogue, but says so much 
through her actors and really allows them to inhabit the characters um, that she writes so well. And a lot of the subject matter of her films is kind of brutal and difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, but she has these very identifiable characters and they just make it poignant and hilarious. And she's really a chronicler of female behavior in quite a exciting way to me. Was there a f- one film in particular that, that won you over? I recently was on a plane and I watched Enough Said, mm. um, her last, her most recent one. And she directs a lot of TV as well. She's done like a lot of Enlightened and Sex and the City and, you know. Um, yeah, Gilmore Girls and Six Feet Under. And Gilmore Girls, Six yeah. Feet Under, exactly. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, Six Feet Under. And so um, she's constantly working, it seems, um, though she's only made five films, I think. Mm. Yep, five features. Um, five films. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was watching that on the flight on one of those tiny little screens, you know. <laughs> and um, Julie Louis-Dreyfus's character is just so needy and it really makes me laugh because I think our shittiness really makes me laugh when it's accepted, understood and shown back at you in a productive way. It makes me feel very joyful for humanity when, when storytellers do that. And her character is a, is a masseuse and she's constantly taking, lugging this great big table around with her to all her clients. And there's this one guy who lives up um, a big flight of stairs um, and she's always going up the outside of the building with this massage table and she, he never thinks to come down and help her lift it. He's just opening the door for her at the top. And she says to her friend, she complains, you know, this guy every single time, you know, never, never helps me with this table. Like, what a bastard, like, it's making me crazy, you know, and I'm smiling at him and I'm rubbing his back and he's just such a shit. And, uh, and her friend says, well, have you ever asked him? Hmm. <laughs> and she's just at the point in the story where she might actually hear that, you know. And the the, the last beat of the film, she's um, she asks him, and he he just immediately goes, "Oh yes, oh gosh, of course, I'm so sorry." And uh, it's the simplicity of that that I I it really touches me. So then I started remembering that I that I'd loved um, "Lovely and Amazing," mm-hmm. and um, that I loved "Friends with Money." Um, and that I'd really enjoyed Please Give. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is somebody who's all her movies I love. And when I went to rewatch Walking and Talking, I thought I was watching it for the first time. And then when I saw it again, I was like, I remember loving this movie, but I didn't know it was her, you know. Mm. It was yeah. the age where I, would, where I would go and trace a director's work. I mean, it was before IMDb. It was, it was mm. when I was young. the um i think friends with money was the first one i saw and i went in with very low expectations because on the outside it kind of looked like a bit of a pandering nancy myers type film a bunch of stars pretending to have problems but all her covers sorry to interrupt all the covers all her dvds except for please give look like a cheesy yes female in quotes yeah um, and they they clearly the advertisers play on that because they have to get that money in you know, in their mind, because people don't recognize her. She's not like a cult figure or anything. And I kind of enjoy that bait and switch. I've started to really enjoy (laughs) that because, yeah, I don't know, watching Friends with Money, just being amazed at this complex and funny and honest exploration of an idea. And it was coming out of that film, I committed her name to memory and started, Mm -hmm. you know, watching out for everything she did. There's this bullet. Yeah, exactly. The humor is brilliant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
that runs through all of her films. Like there's just mm-hmm. such from from Walking and Talking in '96, her, her first feature. Um, you know, it's very you know, there's a lot of very '90s trappings there. It's you know, like mm-hmm. it, it's a film where a video store and you know a a, 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 you know, a rotary phone kind of play <laughs> key parts. You know, it's it's that sort of film. But there's there's instantly that that intimacy and that kind of knowledge of this is how friends act together and this is how friends kind of uh, dynamic changes. Yes. Yeah, and the dynamic changes, yeah. It's kind of like a it's kind of like the the most interesting part of train spotting, you know? Yes. Mm. And that sort of passive aggressive thing that kind of grows and, and they and like you can see them trying to get back to that old dyna- dynamic and it's just not yeah. working. And and you kind of wonder even if the at, at the end of the film whether they'll be the same again, you know, probably not. But it's this acknowledgement that they've changed. Um, well, and it's, not, it's growing up at different rates, you know. Yes. It's so interesting to me. It's just, uh, and like you say, it's really finely wrought, but it's really bloody funny. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Liv Schreiber and and Kevin Corrigan as well, and 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 just I mean, yeah, the cast are all great, and that's something she the ugly has. guy, yes, <laughs> poor ugly guy, poor so ugly brilliant, guy. <laughs> and you know, immediately that ability to attract an interesting cast um, that continues throughout all of her films as well, because of just I guess the writing is so strong, mm. and so as you say, uh, uh, Pollyanna, so contained and so um, compact, but. It's kind of interesting. She learned um, her earlier film experiences were on uh, crewing on uh, Woody Allen films. Well, yeah, her father was uh, an artist, and her mother was a set decorator, and her stepfather mm-hmm. was Charles H. Joffe, who produced all of Woody Allen's films. And so she was really steeped in that world. And I think she was an extra in Sleeper and in Take the Money and Run, and then worked on A Midsummer Night's Sex Comedy and Hannah and Her Sisters. I mean, Woody Allen does so well with awkwardness. And she certainly is very attractive to that. Oh, yeah. Makes her very attractive to me. I yeah. love all humor. <laughs> I'm sure she's kind of almost like that, uh, like an American, almost like a kind of a Mike Lee at times, you know, like kind of yeah. orchestrating these social car crashes and then you just sit back and wait for them to happen. Yeah. Um, and you notice she cast Brenda Blethyn in... Um, in yes. Lovely and Amazing. In, uh, and, uh, and that was not long after Secrets and Lies, so I think she was definitely watching that stuff. Yeah. I mean, she relates to it, is what I mean. Absolutely. Uh, th- yeah, I think you could definitely see a DNA there. Lovely and Amazing, I saw... Well, I'd seen all of her films before except Lovely and Amazing um, mm. before this podcast, and I just really fell for it. It's so good, and so many scenes are so audacious. Like, the scene where um, she Emily Mortimer is asking um, Dermot Mulroney to oh, yeah. critique her. Mm. It's just to like, critique the naked body. Yes. Yeah. It's so confronting and awkward, and and even he's like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Is this some kind of game? Like, what? what is and then this? he gets into it. Yes. Into it, and then he goes, Oh no, I got into it. <laughs> <laughs> And and even like you've got the stuff that you know the, the things she's saying about family and about career and career is a big thing for her too. I find there's all this there's often this thing about her characters yearning for some sort of artistic pursuit or some sort of calling that they're not success, not being successful at, and people kind of telling them why don't you just get a real job? That's interesting yeah. because she really wanted to go into art like her father, but could, um, I don't know why it didn't work out. Uh, but it was, I think, specifically painting she she really wanted to do. And then uh, her stepfather said, look, you should really make films. I, I think I've got that story right. 
And she, she studied film at Columbia. She was taught by Martin Scorsese and then made a short film that was a huge hit at Sundance. So maybe there's that. Maybe she's still got a bit of the, oh, I really want to be a painter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, I think, I think she is interested in money as a theme, like yes. you're saying about that whole difficulty with, you know, struggling to survive and whatnot and, and the jobs that you have to do. Um, but I think she's interested in, in the differences that it makes between people, you know. I think she's interested in the differences between people mm. and how we try and deal with them and how we try to connect despite them. And I have seen, like, uh, the thing that really blindsided me with Lovely and Amazing, though, is the way... I don't think I've seen a film as subtly deal with race. Yeah, mm. yeah. Like it's Subtly just and, and, and unembarrassedly from a white filmmaker. Yes, because like, she has that experience. I mean, she does have a black adopted sister, does she not? Or does she adopt a black kid? I didn't there know is some that. truth to her life in that. Wow, I didn't I'm, know that. I'm going to Google it. But yeah, the way the the, the way that the, the character of, of that little girl and the way all the other characters relate to her and the way she moves in the world and it's never put on front street and it's always something kind of happening around the central action. But it's so eloquent and so critical and interesting and mm. it's yeah, and it's like we're so used to films dealing with race and really putting it out front street. Here's someone that's just like almost like Dealing with it, just something, just tinkering with it in the background, and yet it remains more eloquent than those other films. It's yeah, quite- yeah, it's so great because she she holds things back for a while, and then she when she drops them at the right time, like finding out that um, black woman who is teaching her swimming is is supposed to be the big sister to the kid. Yes, you know that she's in that big brother big sister um, mm. organization because the mother clearly felt she ought to have some black influence, mm. um, but that woman is just like dude, I didn't sign up for this, you know, I signed up for a troubled kid. She's fine, but she's also badly behaved and I don't want to deal with her. <laughs> it's so awkward and so lovely. So honest. There's, there's a thing she, she does, you know, you were talking about she's very concerned with money and, and what people do for a living. And I think with Friends With Money, years before the um, First World Problems hashtag became a thing, she was dealing with that, and in Please Give. I mean, these films should be insufferable because it's about, oh, but how, what do these rich people do with their money? But she's so honest about the lack of self-awareness and, mm-hmm. and, and comparing yeah. people of different social strata that it, mm-hmm. it comes off really insightful and really uh, like she's dealing with stuff that no one else is talking about. Yeah, yeah, I definitely feel that. I think she's able to do that in the way in which she does because she writes those films. And I think that a lot of people reading those scripts probably wouldn't have those films made, you know. Mm. Um, it's her with, with her own script yeah. and her as a director that makes you want to watch more and more of her stuff. I was watching an interview with her and she was like, you know, people say, oh, each scene has to have a beginning, a middle and an end. And every character needs to want something in the beginning and they need to go after it. And do they get it or not by the end of the scene? And she's like, what? it doesn't even make sense on any level to me she's like i don't that isn't how stuff is and that's not my stories are and um she's very inspiring to me because i've written a very personal film that i'm going to direct and um thanks to you guys i've been looking at these interviews and things and it's reminding me that uh it can be done fantastic yeah 
I, I think one of the things that appeals to me so much about her is how she takes an idea and explores it so thoroughly. I mean, enough said, which is, I mean, I love Walking and Talking, her first film. I really love it. But it I, I feel that she's gotten better at what she does with every subsequent film. To Whereas Enough Said is probably my favourite because she's she's taken this very complex idea of the familiar versus the new and she plays with it in... Like, there's not a scene that is wasted. There is no dead air yeah, in this no, film. No. And it's it reminds me... I know I keep comparing things to um, Charlie Kaufman today, but um, it feels like a, a, a very similar to Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind in yeah. that she's entering into this relationship with baggage and she has the baggage before she's even started dating this guy and yeah. about how you deal with that and how, wh- whether you care about the flaw, whether you notice the flaws in people sooner or later. And it's just, I, I think she's so deft and on point with the ideas that she's exploring. Yeah. She's, she's like you say, it's these very big ideas through a very intellectual mind. It must be, for her to get the story out the way she does. And then it's this complete fascination with human beings and our frailties and just being so astute in her observation of how people really are and really talk and really, mm. you know, I never would direct Catherine Keener to to give her like a sarcastic, like, oh God, look at her friend. You know, I would think that would be too much. But she just wants her actors to inhabit the characters so much and she trusts them so much that you get this wonderful intricacy to everything, I think. Mm, yeah. You know? Intricacy that- of, 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 of sensation, but nothing's overplayed and nothing's held on too long either. And the Holofs- uh, and her um, Kina relationship is one of the best actor-director dynamics I've seen. Yeah. yeah. They get so much out of each other. Well, it is so much of her writing and therefore her filmmaking is really autobiographical as well. So mm. I just, I did look it up and she, she does have an adopted brother, black brother. All right. So that comes from, yeah, from life as well. I, it's, um, I feel like a lot of her films, there's, there's a thread running through quite a few of them as people trying to be good people mm. and struggling mm. with that whole concept of being a good person. I think that's why they're so relatable. She doesn't black and white anything. Mm. You know, she 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 doesn't black and white a thing, but yeah. she, but very appealing. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. It's like in the end, you know, we as humans, for the most part, that's what we do. We just try to be the best yeah. people we can, and sometimes we fuck up. She didn't want him to hear that he, she called him ugly guy. She didn't want to do that to him. No, but she did, and um, because she called him ugly, because she thought of him as ugly guy, she did it to him somewhere or another, um, just not the way she expected. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. yeah. She wasn't trying to do that. Yeah, she would never say <laughs> to his being face. Being a bit of a dick. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's okay, right? <laughs> and? Yes, Please Give. When I first watched Please Give, I thought, I remember coming away from it being like, that's a really difficult film to watch. That's really sad. And then I watched it again recently, and I was like, this is just hilarious. <laughs> All up and down. And so hopeful at the same time. That's the thing. The films are so entertaining. Mm. Yeah, they really are. Oliver Platt and Amanda Peet. And, oh, God. Oh, my God. It's just so amazing. Mm. Was, that's a very male situation she has him in. And mm. he said that she asked him, well, you probably know more about this than me, so tell me what this would be like. You know? 
it's that kind of collaboration that I think allows mm. the magic to happen. Right. That's fantastic. There seems to be, just looking at the dates of her films, there seems to be about a four or five year gap between each film. And as someone who wants to see more films, I find that frustrating, but I don't know whether that's, is that just the industry, how hard it is to get those sorts of films made, or does she take that sort of time with her scripts and she needs, you know, four years to, to refine a script? Well, that is, she says she yeah. comes up with loads of ideas that she throws away. Mm-hmm. Right. She says that, like, like so many of the things she comes up with, she's just like, nah, that doesn't interest me that much after a while. She works on it, and it, then it stops interesting her. Mm. Well, she always starts with the theme of something she wants to explore, and then um, she says sometimes it just stops being interesting. But she's still got the same themes through her films, I feel like. Yeah. And I definitely feel like she's going to make more. Yeah. And I also feel like with the with the trying to be a good person thing, she also does have this kind of theme of like conventionally attractive women going out with conventionally unattractive looking men. Mm. That's just life, mate. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot of you that are decent. <laughs> you know, you've got to start dipping into that pool after a while. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, I think. But then a lot of people find James LeGrosse, for example, very attractive. And I find him... LeGrosse? <laughs> I find him a little LeGrosse. LeGrosse. <laughs> oh, poor James. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I normally films is from the, it's the, he, the guy's the lead, right? Yeah. So then you put... Of course, you're going to put a beautiful woman with the guy because the guy's going to be uh, awesome and the woman is for the guys to watch. But this is a film for you know, a lot of women mostly to watch. Mm. And I think it's really, one of the really cool things about it is that she's just not a manipulator in any way, shape or form. And for her to make all the random guys that she puts in her films, you know, all good looking blokes, I think, I think in a way she just casts more interestingly than that. Mm-hmm. You know? But it's also a very I, female spin on that dynamic as well. Like, you know, like you've seen so many sitcoms where you've got an unattractive star with gorgeous wife. And it's like, this is kind of the other way around. This is, and particularly, it's explored in kind of detail in Enough Said and Walking and Talking in particular. That, yeah, and, that's true, actually. And, and even uh, Friends with Money as well. Yeah, It's a very female perspective of, you know, well, this isn't the ideal look, but he has what I need, and this is yeah. what... Yeah. I think, in, I think in Please Give, you could argue with... I was, th- I was thinking of it more on the Please Give side and thinking of Oliver Platt, and I was thinking, yeah, but it's never mentioned that he's kind of overweight and... Yeah you know, unattractive to a degree Mm. because he is so attractive and you can sort of imagine that he would have been attractive when he was young too Mm. and so funny and she's just all about realism and I feel like Catherine Keener's character absolutely should marry to that guy. Yeah. You know, just seems to fit. But then it's explored in the fact that he's having a relationship with with the hot young woman Yeah, and looks are definitely explored there but it's never really said about how he's fat and old. Well, you know? en- enough said. Really, looks into that because they've got you know her her one of her dilemmas is well he's an overweight guy he's you know a bit phlegmy he's sort of you know a bit Balding. gross at times a yeah bit, d- a bit crass as well yeah she wants to be more mannered um, I feel like that's about in all her movies it's about these female characters so I'll call them women um, mm-hmm. who uh, who can't help themselves from being a little worse than they want to be mm. and it takes a series of events for them to realize that their shitty behavior or their shitty character traits kind of need to grow the fuck up you know what i mean 
Yeah. And I feel like that's used for that reason there. But she is, of course, interested in bodies. Yeah. And looks. I mean, that whole scene with Lee Mortimer, like, mm. she's, she's very interested in that. Mm. And the kid in, in Please Give as well. Her paranoia yes. about figure. Um, just very real characters. And, it's and exciting yeah, to think of what, what, what if more women were making movies, what we'd get, you know? Yeah. What would we get? We'd so many new insights. And, and that's the thing, yeah. It is from a very, uh, a very female perspective, but it's so psychologically interesting and so universal that it can't help but sweep anyone in, in terms of that point of view. And it's so interesting. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and that's, as you say, like, I, I, I wish there were more filmmakers out there like her who were able to get stuff up but uh, but i also think that she in her own way is a unique talent as well i think that infallible bullet of truth and her touch with actors and that sort of you know um naturalistic kind of thing and that you know, the social car crash element and all that yes sort of stuff, all the sort wit. Of comes together. i mean amanda pete's sledgehammer stuff that she delivers please mm. <laughs> give is amazing yeah, totally. So, it's like she says. It's like she gets to say through her characters all these awful things that she some we all sometimes think and feel. Yeah. You know, Francis McDormand in Friends with Money, oh, like driving, and just being like, "Hey, asshole, you want to move over here? Fine, fuck you then." You know. Yeah, yeah. And it's like we all do that. We all men or women, we all do that, and we hate ourselves for doing it. And we get to see somebody else doing it, and we get to go, "Oh yeah, I don't oh. like that side of me." You know, it's like what I think reality TV should have done for us yeah. as a society. Yes. When, I, when Big Brother started up, I thought, you know what, let's be hopeful because maybe we'll get to see how we really are and we'll learn something about ourselves and we'll be kinder. And instead, we just, we just took all the bad guys and all the assholes and made them stars and said, go ahead and act like an asshole society. And, and also great. those reality shows are more constructed than films. They're more fake. Uh, mm. I, I find if you really want to see reality, you need to go to scripted films like Nicole Holofcener's films. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you just reminded me about Frances McDormand in Friends with Money. I mean, that whole performance is incredible. But that scene in the shopping in the Old Navy shopping center is like yes, it's like a symphony. Mm. It it's, is like a symphony, and then she walks into the glass, oh. boom, big cymbal crash at the end. Um, and, and again, that whole thing—it's like you're like as well as her simmering anger that's been going on the whole time, her feeling ignored, her fe feeling you know she's getting older and being displaced, and has this husband who's gay and won't admit it, and and all won't be able to you know uh, come to terms with that. And then, and as a, almost like a grace note, she puts in the fact that the couple who push in front of her in line and who she's yelling at are black. Hmm. And there's that simmering thing. It's like, oh, my God, is, is this going to become, like, are they going to think it's a racial thing? Like, you know what I mean? Like, is she going to say something racially? Yeah. You know? And it's like, and, and that becomes another level of awkwardness that gets added to the whole thing. Mm. Yeah. It does so deftly to remind us that she's a human being that we like. Yeah. You know, that she isn't a bad guy. She's just very flawed. And um, that, the specificity sad. that she puts in, yeah, it's very sad. The specificity that she puts in, like, with the fact that Frances McDormand isn't washing her hair, you know, mm. and that her husband notices it. And he makes those uh, cosmetics, those kind of lush, you know, things. Yes. And, and it's like she tells you so much about the characters with such tiny little details. It's just magic. Yeah. Oh, I love it. The writing masterclass. It really yeah. is. Yeah, it's very inspiring to me. I write far too much dialogue. Mm -hmm. Far too much. Flash. Uh, I just want to add that I think Nicole Holofsana clearly likes a foot rub. 
<laughs> All her happy couples in her movies give each other foot rubs. You know what? Her and Quentin Tarantino should hook up. They really should. Oh, my God. It would be a beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, Pollyanna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. For us as well, and we'll see the rest of you next month. you got to go. Just for the exercise, you should go. 